Okay, welcome back to Deep Impact, the podcast where we talk about the media we love, why we like it, and why we think you like it. Today, we're going to be following up on our Final Fantasy VII series and going into the uh, sequel movie that came out seven or so years after the game, uh, Final Fantasy VII Advent Children. So, I'm Nate, and once again, I am with my best friend and co-host. That's me. I'm Link. Uh, I'm a... PhD student studying media psychology and um, hanging out with my best bro, recording a podcast about cool media that uh, has echoed through the eras. (laughs) (laughs) So today we're talking about Final Fantasy VII Advent Children, which is a heartwarmingly tragic story about three orphan brothers who go on a road trip to collect the remains of their deceased mother. Along the way, they learn about life, love, and the importance of family, but run into trouble when they're beset by a group of angry cosplayers. <laughs> Link, uh, uh, when we watched Advent Children a couple of weeks ago, was that the first time you had seen it? It was not, actually. The first time I saw Advent Children was probably in, mm, I want to say, late 2008, early 2009. I was working at a GameStop in a mall, and it was a very slow evening, and I was closing with a coworker I really liked, and this was when GameStop still sold, like, DVDs and had a just a regular ass TV in the store instead of GameStop TV running all the time. And so we put on Advent Children because I had never seen it before and she really liked the movie. And so I watched that for the first time, having never played a Final Fantasy game, knowing nothing about the background. (laughs) But um, it was a very fun experience for me to watch that movie, you know, in GameStop at work. Uh, But yeah, I had no idea what it what it was all about. Um, I think watching it with with you a couple of weeks ago was definitely the first time I had seen it with like context and and at least some background info so I knew what the fuck was going on. So yeah, we'd watched that uh post recording of the first episode of this show so you had a little bit more background on what Final Fantasy 7 was all about and also mm-hmm. you had just finished uh watching Remy play the remake around that same time, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe the remake came out a few months ago, so maybe a little bit before that. Yeah, but st- still fresh. So it's like, at least I knew the characters' relationships to each other. Mm-hmm. This is like the first time I watched it. It's like, that guy's name is Cloud. <laughs> That's all I know. <laughs> He's got blonde hair. And I'm just like, every every time anybody's on screen, I'm like, is that Sephiroth? <laughs> Wait, but is that Sephiroth? Well, I mean... It's just, it's it w- just, just wait, just wait, just wait. You'll see. Just wait. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Advent Children is the sequel to Final Fantasy VII. It takes place two years after the end of the game, and it tells the story of uh, Cloud having to deal with these three mysterious... Uh, Sephiroth lookalikes who show up and start stealing kids. Uh, From what I understand, uh, the general plot is, so 
Uh, the end of Final Fantasy VII, Meteor is crashing down, and the planet sends out the life stream to save everybody, uh, and it pushes the meteor back. Uh, but soon after that, uh, this is post-game now, a mysterious disease starts popping up. Uh, people are calling it Geostigma, and it has something to do with the planet and the crisis, uh, and no one really knows what's going on. And so suddenly these three Sephiroth lookalikes show up uh, who have very funny names. Uh, their names are Kadaj, Luz, and Yazoo is my favorite one. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why they were chosen, if there's any meaning or symbolism behind those names. You know, <clears throat> I call them I call them Hunky Sephiroth. And scary Sephiroth and baby Sephiroth. <laughs> uh, I have them written in my notes as the baby Sephiroths. The triplets. The triplets. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so so right. At the end of the game, they defeat Sephiroth, but Midgar still gets destroyed. Yeah, well, it's uh, you get that after credit scene of 500 years in the future. And uh, Midgar is destroyed and overrun by nature. And this is supposed to symbolize that even though humanity may have been uh, wiped out at one point, it's unclear uh, if that's the case. But either way, this massive city is now reclaimed by nature. And that's, you know, the big symbolic ending image. Mm. Uh, because, as we talked about before, a big theme of Final Fantasy VII was environmentalism and the impact that capitalism is having on the planet, you know? Yeah. I definitely <clears throat> feel like that is uh, less of a focus theme-wise in the movie. Well, uh, <laughs> one of the things that uh, I can bring up in regards to that is the character Barrett is revealed uh, to, like, post-lifestream post energy-sucking venture world his idea for an alternative energy so source is he's striking it big in the oil business <laughs> oh no yeah yike <laughs> so it i you know i'm not sure if that means that that theme of environmentalism was really just kind of attacked on afterthought in the original game and they were just totally like, all right we're done with that imagery let's move on but I just, I find it, or I don't know if it's self-aware and they were like trying to be like, oh, get it? Like, even though humanity is getting rid of the life stream energy, like now we have to deal with oil. Yeah. I don't know I if mean, that was supposed to be like a self-aware thing that just flew over my head. It could be. I feel like it's probably more like that just wasn't the aspect that they were focusing on in, in this story compared to, I mean, definitely in their original game, like that was a main theme that they kept returning to. But um, in the movie, definitely that is like background factors. I feel like in the movie, it is uh, a lot more focused on like these relationships between people who have like survived through a traumatic world changing events and then like trying to just deal with that afterwards and how it can be really, really hard. I mean, especially for Cloud, who ends up like self isolating himself because he's super traumatized by, you know, his his part and everything and yeah, blaming well, that himself is... for for um, Aerith's death. 
that's Cloud's main narrative arc in this movie is that he's still guilt ridden by not being able to save Aerith and Zack, who was the the guy whose personality he took on as part of his original trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, and well, it is probably one of the most coherent parts of the narrative in this movie. I feel like Cloud's arc, you know, is almost redundant because it more or less mirrors the same personal realizations he had at the end of the game. Yeah. Which, like, in one way, it makes sense for a movie perspective is like, if this is our our solid through line character development for our main character, like, it makes sense to recycle that aspect. But they didn't frame it in such a way where it's like they expected you to know all of that stuff. But then also for this to be a new thing is like, hmm, wait, hmm, what? Well, that has long been one of the main criticisms of at least the original release of Advent Children is that uh, the narrative and plot was described as, you know, not impenetrable, but difficult to grasp, even for people who had the context of having played the game. I remember the first time that I saw Advent Children was in 2006, and it must have been a couple months after the Japanese release, because I watched it, I watched a fan translation of it on a burn DVD that someone in high school <laughs> gave me. Nice. I'm an old school anime fan. <laughs> uh, but anyway, and... It was, you know, again, fan translation, and it was very rough. Mm -hmm. And I had just finished playing the game for the first time, and I didn't even know really what was going on. I knew the general idea of who the bad guys were, mm -hmm. because they look like Sephiroth, and so it was very obvious that and these are the bad guys. They play the bad guy music. Yeah, yeah they play the bad guy music. Uh, and I knew who the good guys were because I recognized them from the game. But as to what people's motivations were and why they were trying to get the things, the MacGuffin of this <laughs> game. Uh, I, I So the MacGuffin of this game, this movie, the uh, this object <laughs> that the, tri the triplets are trying to get to is Genova's head the alien monster that spawned Sephiroth in the first game. Uh, and I didn't know that that's what they were trying to get. That was their goal until several years and several viewings after my first. <laughs> uh, yep. <clears throat> so, yeah, anyway, the triplets show up in town. They're kidnapping kids with the geostigma disease because it turns out that... Uh, when you defeated Sephiroth at the end of the f of the game, uh, he his spirit dispersed into the life stream and started fucking people up. So the geostigma is Sephiroth juice. Yeah, the geostigma is Sephiroth Genova juice. And then they're going to like basically sacrifice all these these sick kids so that their juice can resurrect Sephiroth. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and and the three Sephiroth lights, they're... It's not even fully explained where they came from. They're just described as, like, uh, 
remnants of Sephiroth's personality that have somehow collected into physical beings, and then their one goal is to merge back together into into Big Daddy Sephiroth. <laughs> I'm imagining, like, in Sephiroth's bedroom, there's a big pile of dirty clothes that just, like, takes human form and is like, I must resurrect. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you have a duster, if you have, like... A black leather duster in that condition, you just don't let it go to waste when you die. Like, you come back and haunt that shit. Hell yeah. It's, it's a great jacket. Advent Children came out 2005 in Japan. It came out the following year, 2006 in uh, America. So in, and- in Japan, it had a at least a short theatrical release, right? But then in America, it was straight to DVD. Correct. I don't believe so. I I thought that was the case, but I looked it up and it was announced from the get go as a straight to DVD movie. Oh, uh, the difference is in Japan at the same time as the regular DVD release, they did have a super special edition that you could get that came with the original game and a guidebook for the original game. Oh, and a companion book that gives you a bunch of like important primer information for the movie. <laughs> they g- Yeah. Uh, like they gave you a homework workbook. <laughs> Here, do this homework first and then you can watch our movie. <laughs> well, it, one of the issues that I have with the movie is that from the get-go, uh, you're introduced to this new character that did not appear in the in the 1997 game. He's a little kid. His name is Denzel. And the entire plot revolves around him. So at some point in the two years between the game ending and the movie starting, uh, Denzel is an orphan who at some point goes to live with Cloud and Tifa. And we're introduced to him at the beginning of the movie as if we should already know who this character is and why we should care about him mm-hmm. and why he's with Cloud and Tifa and the other characters. And all that information is was published separately in uh, these like in these light novel short story collections uh, that they collated. They first appeared in magazines and then they collated and uh, published as part of the special release DVD. Interesting. So I wonder... I mean, this makes me think, like, is this just happenstance, coincidence, or or was it intentional choices made by uh, the people who created Final Fantasy and the surrounding media? It, like, obviously, at some point, they recognized that this was becoming a, like, full transmedia experience, that, that people just fucking loved Final Fantasy, and especially Final Fantasy VII. So, like, was it an intentional choice to just be like, hey, the fans want a movie, we're gonna make them a movie? Or is it like, if we make this movie, then this movie also gives us, like, eight more points through which to get people on board the 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 transmedia train of Final Fantasy. I mean, it's a little a column A, a little a column B. Uh, I do know for a fact that Advent Children was planned as part of this 
mass uh, transmedia Final Fantasy VII initiative, uh, which is called, uh, it was called the Compilation of Final Fantasy VII. Square realized that Seven was a particularly popular title within the series, and uh, Tetsuya Nomura, uh, who is the writer, character designer, and eventual uh, lead director in all things involving Final Fantasy VII, he really liked this world he created. Uh, it's pretty obvious that Final Fantasy VII was uniquely important to him as a game designer. And so he really wanted, he was the one who was pushing for this compilation series of multiple multimedia Final Fantasy VII tie-ins. Mm -hmm. And uh, Advent Children was supposed to be the big kickoff for that. I mean, it sounds like it worked. <laughs> I mean, yeah, what I, I guess what I'm saying in answer to your question is that the demand was there, but it, it, there was equal participation from from the development team in that in that excitement for this for yeah this i just world. i just wonder if if there was intention in making some of these pieces of media sort of impenetrable oh so to, you had to, to go so like, so like the the you know it's like oh people who didn't play the video game will be all like well i want to watch that movie it looks cool but then they don't understand the movie so it's like well maybe i'll check out these light novels so i can understand what's going on in the movie and they're like we gotcha we gotcha you're paying money we gotcha um I, I assume that there were some people who were thinking of it like that and there were other people who were just like no look the fans want a movie let's make them a movie it's funny that you mentioned that because in response to the criticism of the plot being like uh, un unpenetrable to people who weren't familiar with Final Fantasy VII, they released a director's cut in 2009 called Final Fantasy VII Advent Children Complete. And it has about uh, 30 minutes of extra footage, deleted scenes that flesh out the world and the narrative more. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, uh, they also put out a like 10 minute uh, animated recap of the events of the game. <laughs> um, okay, but yeah. Here, and that recap was criticized for being uh, unintelligible to people who didn't who hadn't played the game. <laughs> so even if you so if you hadn't played the game, you still wouldn't get the recap of the game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty deep. There's there's a lot of stuff in there, and it's it is hard to explain without like maps and <laughs> a wall covered in string. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Uh, no, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I I criticize about this movie, and there's a few things that I like too. Uh, you know, one thing that I did want to bring up is that. Uh, this movie came out in 2005, and the CGI is really good, considering. Yeah, I, as I was looking over, um, I spent some time looking over reviews from when it came out, looking at um, you know bigger critical publications, and then also some like personal blog posts and stuff like that. Um, and definitely, like that was the overwhelming response from people is like, it looks so good. This is the coolest animated shit we've ever seen. This is like the cutting edge of technology. Um, please don't try and make sense of the plots. <laughs> it's a waste of time. But damn, look at that motorcycle fight scene. That's so hot, right? <laughs> 
Yeah, no, it looks great, and it was, the fight scenes are really well choreographed for CGI fight scenes, and that's probably because the studio that animated it uh, was a... Uh, they weren't a, like a, a CGI movie studio. They were exclusively for making cutscenes in video games. Yeah. Uh, and so the game, the movie started off actually as a 20 minute short film that they wanted to animate just because they really wanted to, to make a final fantasy seven fight uh, cutscene, but like in super modern graphics. Mm hmm. Uh, and then that uh, kind of spread through the grapevine and it got back to the higher ups at Square Enix, who that really gave them the idea to push for making a full 90 minute feature film. Mm -hmm. uh, but that also may tie back into one of the other major criticisms of this is that uh, the plot is very thin and seems mostly to be there to tie in segments between fight scenes which you know uh 15 year old me 16 year old me i was okay with <laughs> i didn't come here for a plot i came here for cloud and his huge sword well you know it just this uh it just goes to show you how i absorb media differently you know between now and 15 years ago i certainly hope so <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I mean, it, not only, you know, the difference in age and experience, but also like your relationship to the IP over time has changed, I assume. Mm -hmm. um, well, yeah, definitely. With each new entry in, in a franchise, your overall, you have to reevaluate it every time something new comes out. Mm -hmm. I don't think that you can analyze a franchise, you know, bit by bit in a vacuum. Yeah. But I also see people who, uh, I get people who can separate individual entries like that. I can't. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the, uh, the CGI is, was really good at the time. I just, so I rewatched with you a couple weeks ago and I rewatched it again by myself yesterday just to have it fresh in my mind. And there are some, some cracks that have, that are starting to show up. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's amazing that it's lasted 15 years before you really start to notice like the small things. But like there's a scene where Tifa goes to pick up uh, a phone and you can just barely see that she's not fully gripping it. It's more like it's magnetically stuck to her palm. <laughs> yeah. Stuff like that. And like when when monsters burst into smoke after getting stabbed. Yeah, uh, yes. Uh, you can see the pixels coming through. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely see its age in 2020 watching a, you know, 20-year-old movie. Um, but I, honestly, it doesn't it doesn't look as bad as I expected it to. Yeah, no, it's aged really well and I think part of that was like I, a part of the reason for them wanting to do this movie was to show off the technology of what they can make a game like in the future. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that that had a big role in in the decision to fund this movie. I mean, yeah, when you think about like Advent Children and then 
like in-game scenes from the the recent Final Fantasy VII remake is like, whew, we come a long way. You think about that original square little blocky guy with club hands, and now he's like a whole he sexy became a real twink boy. with like individual fingers and all sorts of shit. Hair texture. Oh. I would like to talk about some of the character designs. Uh, particularly, I'm not they. So when they were designing, redesigning the characters for this movie, it was obvious to the team uh, that the original costume designs did not translate well to the way they were trying to make yeah. the world look. And I can see where they were going with some of these redesigns. Uh, a lot of them are great. I really like Clouds and I like Tifa's. Uh, uh, Cloud particularly uh, looks much more sleek and well put together. But then for some reason they went and gave Barrett uh, he's wearing like a fishnet tank top underneath, <laughs> like a North Coast downy vest. Uh huh. And I think that that's peak early two thousands fashion. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's like everybody's a little bit of a raver. Oh man! Speaking of, uh, that was a thought that went through my head yesterday when I was rewatching the triplets. Uh, the the baby Sephiroths are all wearing raver pants. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a trip commercial right there. <laughs> oh man! Advent children, more like advert children by trip pants. Ad uh, hot topic. <laughs> speaking of, uh, as part <laughs> of this this massive media tie-in to. Uh, you know, the compilation of Final Fantasy VII, Panasonic made a custom cell phone that is exactly the same that the one as the one you see Cloud use in the film. What? And it's loaded, it was loaded with uh, like custom Final Fantasy VII uh, backgrounds and ringtones. I had no and idea. That's, that's, I wonder, I wonder if that actually sold. That's wild. Yeah, and it came, I think, preloaded with the uh, what's it with the phone game about the Turks. Yeah, that they made, uh, which was another another part of this uh, compilation uh, thing that they were putting together. Can you imagine buying a whole last phone just to play a phone game? Oh wait, that is what I do with my phone. I mean <laughs> I mean, I know people who bought uh, a whole ass Switch just to play Zelda. Well, wow. Uh, there's a lot of finger pointing going on around here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in this picture and I don't like it. One criticism that I personally have uh, about this movie is, I, we've touched on it a few times, but particularly the the way the plot is written and... Uh, how you are assumed to know some things about some characters and are assumed to have read the prerequisite materials mm -hmm. about certain other new characters. You know, uh, one of the big things that I was always confused about until until recently was the source of geostigma, the disease that's going around uh, in the film. Because they don't really explain it, or at least I thought they didn't in the film. But after rewatching it yesterday, and I was doing a thing where on scenes that had a bunch of very rapid dialogue, I was going back and rewinding it 
maybe two or three times just to make sure I knew what everybody was saying mm-hmm. because there's a lot of talking over each other between characters uh, and you miss some stuff. But they do actually explain it in the film, but it's a blink and you miss it kind of thing, which, you know, is a point against good narrative writing. Mm-hmm. But it's where they explain where Geostigma is coming from and how, uh, you know, there's the life stream and everyone has a tiny connection to it. And Genova got into it and is the, the people with Geostigma are being infected by rogue Genova life stream. Bad vibes, basically. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they just kind of drop that in the middle of a rather benign conversation between two characters and never touch on it again. So I was wondering why, why you would write a movie like that. And I found a quote from Tetsuya Numura, uh, that may explain that, but he was saying that when he was writing the film, he really wanted to make as many scenes as ambiguous as possible because he wanted them to be he wanted them to be up for interpretation between viewings. Mm. And I'm not sure if like maybe I just have a narrow view of what a narrative should be like, but that seems antithetical to a narrative to me. I think it makes sense in the context of having come from games writing, right? Um I feel like with film writing, you want it to be a lot more structured so people can follow along. But with games writing, you want it to be a little bit more collaborative where um, the player is also sort of creating space with you, right? And so the idea of like, I want my movie to be sort of vague and open to interpretation um, feels more like coming from that game angle. Um yeah, but it I mean, also it also it also sounds like a little bit of an excuse where it's like, don't ask me to explain this. How dare you? Well, it's the <laughs> How dare ultimate you ask style. Me to explain my writing. <laughs> it's the ultimate style over substance, like comment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just like I'm just gonna be all style and whatever you want to make of it. That's on you, but but I don't take on the responsibility yeah. of having to give you a narrative. Yeah. So as as I'm, you know, thinking about this in, in 2020 and looking back at, at how this movie has sort of rippled through time, I feel like that actually, like, that does come through, that that was the intention for it to be a little bit vague, because so much of it was just like, this is, it's, it's fan service, this is enjoyment for the fans, these are for the fans who have already spent so much time investing and in understanding this world and building out their own ideas about, you know, how things work and how the characters interact with each other. And so leaving it vague allows space for those people to sort of maintain their own internal stories, but then incorporate this new piece of media as well. Now, I'm going to add on to what you just said, and I agree that this was made, it was fan service for the fans, but I assert that it was made for nobody but Tetsuya Nomura, <laughs> because he is the biggest Final Fantasy VII fan. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> I mean, as I was as I was doing my, my pre-recording uh, research stuff, it's like I was looking over... Um, 
fan fiction because I feel like that's a good way to measure how people respond to a piece of media. And it's very interesting to see that there is, um, you know, not a ridiculous amount of Advent children specific fan fiction, but there there was some. There was some. I mean, a lot more focused on the on the games themselves and um, lots of lots of cross uh, series stuff. You know, all uh, Kingdom Hearts. Um, but um, it was very interesting. It's, it definitely feels like it fits into that that idea of like if we leave some ambiguity, then it gives more space for people to continue to create and grow this space. Um, and you can definitely see that through, you know, looking at fan fiction that came out right after the movie. Hey, I want, can you see how many, how many more fanfics on fanfic.net are there for straight Final Fantasy VII? Well, not straight Final Fantasy Seven, but <laughs> there's zero straight. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for OG Final Fantasy Seven versus Advent Children specific, I wonder. Okay, I think um, Archive of Our Own is a better website for this. So when I search just Advent Children, I get one thousand seven hundred and eighty-three hits, and when I okay. search Final Fantasy Seven. What? Less hits? Less hits. 617. It must be that... Um, oh, you know what it is? Is because it's doing a full... Um, it's doing word search, not a full term search. <laughs> uh, Advent children as a term. Wow. Okay, that's still 1,500. I, uh, I was wrong. There are more... There are more... Oh, hey, okay. So a lot of these that's interesting. A lot of these are looking like a lot of these fanfic works are basically incorporating it, right? It's not straight Advent Children uh fan fiction. It's Advent Children fan fiction that focuses a lot more on characters that were in the game or other uh -huh. stuff like that. Post post the movie that incorporates the other games and stuff like that. <laughs> I'm sorry. This one's just called When Cloud Smiles. Ah. Zach reflects on an aspect of Cloud. <laughs> Anyways, oh my God. it's yeah. I mean, clearly this this is we're seeing like people didn't necessarily like love the movie because the movie was so good, but they loved the movie because it gave them more of these characters that they cared about, more of this grand world's life stream alien attack sort of story. And it gave people more space to sort of play in that world and make their own stuff and, and come up with their own theories and everything. I think that's that's really fucking cool. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. You know, uh, it's fun having... Especially after after so long from the release of the original game, mm -hmm. you know, it, the game came out in 97 and it was a smash hit. And not only was it a smash hit, it uh, continued to be popular within yeah. the overall uh, gaming zeitgeist, if you will, for for many years after its release enough to warrant a multi-million dollar budgeted film. Mm hmm. And so I've got 
I want to ask you a question. I want you to take a guess here. Which do you think... So first of all, it's important to note that uh, the two major critical agra... Critical aggregate sites, IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes, do things slightly different. Rotten Tomatoes does its aggregate reviews from official published, you know, critic articles. And IMDb is more fan-based. Anyone can start an IMDb account and vote for a movie. But uh, which do you think uh, is going to have a higher score? The critical response or the fan response? Ooh, I'm... I'm going to say that they're pretty close, but that critical response was slightly lower. Define slightly. <laughs> like within 5%, plus or minus 5%. Now, okay. now it's either direction. <laughs> you're, you're way off. So yeah. uh, Advent Children currently has a uh, aggregate review from critics on Rotten Tomatoes of 33%. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that sounds right. Uh, but IMDb, uh, it has a 7 out of 10. That's a solid C, 75%. 70%. (laughs) (laughs) Math is hard, and (laughs) people on IMDb are uh, a lot more generous with their points giving. (laughs) And here's the dark horse here. It has a 92% liked rating from Google users. No, that makes sense. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. So yeah, this is a a whole ass movie. A video game movie. A video game movie. Which are are just known to be terrible, and this one does not rock that boat. Um This may be personally for me, this probably ranks higher on the list of video game to film adaptations. Oy. I don't know, man. <laughs> There's so many low bars. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I I enjoyed watching it, even though, yes, it is dated and um, not having the immediate context of the, the game would have made it an even worse viewing experience just from, like, sheer confusion. Um but it was a, it was a fun film, and and I can definitely see why like why it got made and why people um, enjoyed it or didn't enjoy it, but still wanted to talk about it. You know. Mm-hmm. So would you say that we've wrung this sponge dry for now? Uh, I feel pretty good about it. Is there anything else you wanted to to touch on? Uh, nothing that we can't touch on in future installments. I believe the next episode that I would like to do in this Final Fantasy VII series uh, would be for the 2007 video game sequel to Advent Children, uh, Dirge of Cerberus, which is a third-person shooter centering around the optional character Vincent Valentine from the 1997 game. Right. Who was in the movie. Who was in the movie? Saved Cloud. Who had like a, a big a big plot point in the movie. He saved Cloud. You're right. At one point. Yeah. I wonder if people who played Final Fantasy VII but never bothered to get Vincent in their party were confused as to like who he was. Who's this guy? Who is this? Who is this uh, misfits reject swooping <laughs> in with his with his torn up cape? Oh man. And then talking about cell phones. 
Always. Oh man, it's 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 buck wild out there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you want to throw in a shout out for geek therapy? Sure. Um, yeah. So this this has been Deep Impact. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this will be posted through the Geek Therapy Network, which you can find at geektherapy.com, along with a bunch of other dope podcasts, including Geek Therapy Radio, of which I am a co-host. Um, yeah, we, we're also on Twitter and Discord and uh, uh, all, all sorts of places that you can find us. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, anyways, thank you so much for listening. It has been great, and um, we will be back to talk about some more deeply impactful media. I would like to say thank you to my friend Remy Sorkin for providing the intro and outro music. He goes by DJ Turbo Dracula. You can follow him on Twitter at, at DJ Turbo Drac. Uh, and we will see you next time, listeners. Bye. Bye.